Welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And I'm Caitlin, and I'm PI's campaigns officer. Hi. I realized I work <laughs> campaigns office. I'm the whole campaigns office, except no, we have like a team of three. Yes. Today, Caitlin is the whole office of campaigns at PI. <laughs> I feel bad for Elliot and Harmit. That seems wildly self-aggrandizing. I'm sorry, you didn't come through in any of that, but I imagine <laughs> the recording locally is fine. Just don't hate me for not responding. Cool. It was an incredibly funny joke. Imagine the funniest joke I've ever told. Like, that's how good it was. How was that for laughter? Excellent. Thank you very oh, much. Caitlin, that is the smartest thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> So just to add a particularly humane aspect to this podcast, because we're never one to try to gloss over any awkward facts, I'm currently recording this from Athens, and Caitlin is recording it from a camper van, which means the quality of the communication is quite challenging. So please bear with us if this is not the level of quality you are accustomed to, but it is the very hot (laughs) summer. This week, we're talking to Andrea Bellou, Campaigns and Communications Manager at EDRI, the European Digital Rights Organization. And Andrea will be talking about how to evade facial recognition, or the challenges in evading facial recognition. Andrea, along with PI, and with the help of two artists, Adam Harvey and Timen Shep, has been working on resisting facial recognition together. She's part of a coalition running a ECI, which Caitlin will talk us through, that tells the European Commission it's time to clear up the law and ban the use of facial recognition and other forms of biometrics for mass surveillance. But she's also been working with PI on how to resist facial recognition more directly in trying to work out if it's possible to use a common piece of COVID kit, that is the face mask, to evade facial recognition. Awesome. So the ECI is a European citizens initiative, which means it's a formal legal process by which European citizens generally, no matter where they're based, unless you're a German citizen, in which case it does matter where you're based, slightly confusingly, can ask the European Commission for specific changes in law. So in this case, it's banning biometric surveillance. In other cases, it's been things like improving animal welfare by making sure I think it was chickens couldn't be kept in cages in the food making process just got accepted by the ECI and will be moved towards becoming law in Europe. So it's a very direct and formal process by which you can ask the European Commission for a specific change in law. The only problem is you need to reach 1 million signatures and a certain threshold of people in a certain number of countries. So it's a huge target, but we're hopeful that we'll be able to reach it. There are all these well-documented, methodical, and dare I say, legal articulations as to why facial recognition is troublesome. But from one advocate to another, what what worries you so much 
about facial recognition? Is it the long-term potential? Is it what it says about our relationship with tech? Is it the specificities of how the tech is embedded in systems and deployed? What is it that essentially keeps you up at night and, and, and drives you on this issue? I think it helps me to think of the infinite dangers that come with facial recognition in a public space by just thinking how much of a gatekeeper my face is to all my freedoms. Because I can do so many things with my face, and in the same time, my face can be used in so many ways against me. And that is only when we're thinking about facial recognition, right? Because I'm thinking that in, in a broader sense, when we're talking about biometrics, it's way beyond face, right? And I think from starting being active in a political space when I was at university and joining student protests, it was so important to be not fully stripped naked of all the details in my personal life when I was in that protest, simply because the mere fact that I was in that protest could have endangered perhaps how I was perceived by my professors even, not even to mention the state-funded university that I was in, right? So especially because we we're protesting against state-pushed kind of uh, university conditions. So that is one thing that makes me think of the chilling effect of this type of surveillance, the fact that I would have never been able to even think in such progressive social change ways, the need for political change like I am today, if I had the chilling effect at the time in which I was forming myself as a political actor. You know? So that's one thing. And then the second thing is we think of these technologies, and I, I'm, I'm worried mainly that the current narrative around the technology is whether we should turn it on and off and in which situation we should turn it on and off. But we talk too little about whether do we actually need to have it there? Like, do we really need it installed in the first place rather than turn on and off and in which cases? And I think that that's part of a broader kind of narrative that keeps on pushing all types of reasons for mass surveillance purposes. And the COVID pandemic offered a great example of how people's fears can be really, and anxieties can really be used against them when it comes to asking them whether they would choose personal freedom or a fight against a common shared enemy, right? And I feel like it's such an unfair narrative to have because any human being, if asked to choose, do you choose your health, your child's health, your mother's health, or personal freedoms? Of course they would choose health, but it's such a wrong dichotomy to create. It's such a wrong choice to ask someone to make. So I feel like this is also something that worries me a lot, the way the choice is framed in a way that is not really a choice at the end of the day. So I'm basically, in a nutshell, worried about the health of civil society and our ability to build capacity moving forward among people that are willing to take 
action, but might be scared of taking action. And I'm also afraid of the way people's fears and anxieties are, you know, sometimes used against them to create these societies of suspicion and fear just to push uh, this type of technology. That's such an extraordinary and wonderfully encapsulated concern for the future. And in the sense, like it's the loss of the individual's sense of being able to create boundaries and how that will affect us all, not just as individuals grouped together, but as a society ultimately. And that's the whole concept around the shrinking civil spaces and, and as you say, the chilling effect, which is such a powerful argument in favor of reduction in, in surveillance. And your second argument is also just as powerful. And it hints at the question that the digital rights sector has never really been able to deal with appropriately. And that is this idea that we can decide which technologies we do use and which ones we don't. Often we rely on the argument that the genie's out of the bottle. That's how cryptography should be allowed to be used by anybody because governments, how dare you regulate? But equally, at this moment in time, there's a key moment in time around facial recognition that we can stand up and say, no, there are some technologies we choose not to allow in our lives. And it is, it, it's, it's just an interesting moment for us in, in that regard. And particularly with the larger landscape, as you say, of whether it's a pandemic or the next time there's a terrorist attack, we'll have to make these stark decisions in the context of those. So part of the reason that we're chatting for the podcast is, is when it comes to the facial recognition or anti-facial recognition as they were originally masks. And do you think that giving people some level of initially, because we'll talk about where they've ended up, but initially, do you think it was important or it felt important to give people some level of protection or something that they could do more like directly in their day-to-day -day lives? Like, was that part of the reason for deciding to start trying to create the masks? Absolutely. I think it's important that people are able to touch the resistance. <laughs> I think it's important that people can relate to their daily routine when they're talking about any campaign in general, but especially about this one, because we're talking about public spaces, daily lives, random walks. So I think, you know, when we talked about the face mask, we thought, you know, that's a new detail that you're taking with you every day nowadays. And in many ways, it made people feel more comfortable. In other ways, it felt people feel more uncomfortable. But in all ways, it made people realize that it's there. I mean, people surely talk about the mask, right? So it's something that you can think of also in other kind of use cases. And I think the responsibility of the individual is not the one that we need to refer to when we're fighting technologies such as biometric mass surveillance, because at the end of the day, it's not the job of the individual to fight these things. That's why we have the law to stop those things from happening, regardless of whether the individual takes a stance against it or a measure against it or not. But 
being able to do something also shows you how difficult it is to actually succeed in resisting it. So, you know, it's actually in the moments of resistance that you realize the power structures that are there because they will start coming back at you as you're trying to resist something, right? And I think we wanted to start that conversation. We weren't sure if we will be able to give individuals a piece of something that will finish the conversation, but we were definitely hoping to give people a piece of merch that will start the conversation. And I think we more or less managed to, uh, to succeed that, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> And on a systemic level, people can sign on to the European Citizens Initiative, the link for which we will put in the description wherever you're listening to this podcast. So when it comes to the masks, the masks themselves are like COVID-style face masks. And the initial plan was for them to aid in fooling facial recognition, I guess would be the way to say it. Like how did the design process work or get started? Or So we first read that new algorithmic tweaks can now recognize faces even if you're wearing the mask. And we were like, hmm, interesting. So what is the mask obsolete or does it well, no, we, we also knew that the mask itself actually does help to some extent to make it harder for AI to recognize your face too. So we were like, okay, so to which point do we go? Can we do something about the mask for it to fully block any facial recognition that, that you might encounter in the public space? So we started with a couple of ideas to first understand what are we up against? Do we, what do we want to trick? What are we fighting? And we uh, got advice from Time and Ship and Adam Harvey in terms of existing databases that are used to feed artificial intelligence uh, systems that current facial recognition technologies use when training. So we're like, okay, so what we might be up against is those databases. We're trying to trick those. But actually, we realized that well, one, they're really diverse. So it's not like we have one type of facial recognition AI that uses one single type of training databases and so on. And then the second challenge was that they're closed. They're completely opaque. So even if, let's say, we've mapped all the types of technologies using different types of algorithms deployed Currently, we would still not be able to understand how exactly they work so that we can reverse engineer them. So, and that was a bit sad. And at the same time, also reinforcing the idea that for an individual, trying to develop such resistance tools is a bit difficult, you know, because even if with huge capacities and research things, it would still be impossible. And I'm saying impossible because, yes, it might be possible to find one type of algorithm in an open source I don't know, database and look at how it works and find a design that completely dazzles it. But in the end, 
you know, you might have other products deployed in many other different ways and different locations throughout Europe that are not uh, using the same kind of logic. So then, you know, you can have a mask for London, um, I don't know, Soho, and another mask <laughs> for, I don't know, Tondon Hale, another mask for Enfield because it's a bit higher up. <laughs> and you keep like switching masks. So it, <laughs> that's not really what we need to end up with, right? So in the end, we said, okay, let's just write the story of why it was so difficult and why is it so impossible to actually reach a one mask fits all kind of outcome. And let's create a design that is associated with the story, but that we cannot vouch for as tricking all facial recognition in all public spaces. So yeah, there's the design. So the problem isn't it so much that it's impossible to make an anti-facial recognition mask, it's impossible to prove that it works because you can't get access to all the systems, right? It's impossible to prove that it works against Amazon recognition with a K because they're so cool. And Huawei's end, this person and this person. That sucks. That sucks, but... <laughs> are you interested in finding out more about what facial recognition actually is? What the different types are and what you're likely to see in the wild? Why not check out our podcast from a few weeks ago, A Spotter's Guide to Facial Recognition, where we answer just those questions. So A Spotter's Guide to Facial Recognition. These technologies are so concerning, so problematic. This stuff matters, and that's this long journey that we're about to take you on. It's so weird and creepy. I mean, I imagine your face is also recognising your face. (laughs) Where exactly is it bad, and what can we do to stop that from happening? Okay, back to Masks, the podcast, and Andrea. The story that we're kind of telling is, here is this thing, no one in the world, unless they're manufacturing all the facial recognition, but no one in the world can promise you that any solution works, definitely. The only real solution that would work is a band. Is that fair? Absolutely. So what the mask is good for is obviously stopping the spread of the COVID virus to those around you, right? That we can vouch for, but nothing else. Of course, if you put the face mask on and a paper bag on top of your head, then yes, it (laughs) might also help completely taking you from any facial recognition. But that's uncomfortable. (laughs) So indeed, a ban on biometric mass surveillance in public spaces is actually the easiest, most comfortable and fundamental rights, human rights friendly approach. I love the way you're speaking about this, because as advocates, we're always struggling between the question of individual autonomy to create change and that our adversaries are so big that they can crush individual autonomy. And so, you know, are are, are we in favor of a David and Goliath kind of fight and we want to help David fight this this huge Leviathan? Or are we trying to say that Leviathan is so big you can't fight it unless you undermine it in other ways? But what you've managed to do by telling a story here, but also taking the opportunity around masks for public health to turn it essentially into an educational exercise and a conversation starter in the same way that 
in a sense, a T-shirt that says, I click no to ads, <laughs> doesn't actually protect you from ads. And nor do you clicking no necessarily protect you, but it's, a, it's an articulation. It's a, it's a societal statement. And it's, a, it's the beginning of a conversation where we know that training everybody across the planet on how to click no or telling everybody to wear a mask isn't the solution but at least they're having that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Actions are often important simply because they symbolize a stance. And I feel like the same with the T-shirt and this mask and um, a click, there's value. And there's, there's actually values embedded in that action. And I think values are a huge political value, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like yeah. we know in, especially in the digital rights community, that in order for someone to be fully anonymous, a great deal of technicalities and like legal knowledge. And you, know, you really need that if you really want to be anonymous. And that is difficult to get a person that is not aware of the whole thing familiar with. It doesn't start the conversation. Often it, it ends it because people understand how difficult it is and that they conclude they cannot do it because you need to know so much to do it. But symbolic actions are opening doors. They're not closing doors. And I feel like that's where we need to be at. We need to open the doors and take a bit more of a uh, let's learn together approach rather than I teach you how it is. You don't know too bad. That's all. I love that symbolic approach. That's like, there's been a lot of discussion recently about how the uh, Tiananmen Square protests were essentially erased for a moment in time from search engines and you couldn't find Tank Man. And I remember Tank Man. Like, I, there's a lot I remember from that era, but there's something about that symbol of that one individual standing in front of the tank. We all know the tank could have run him over. And we all know that this, the briefcase that he was holding was not going to be a safeguard. But it is the symbol. And that's very well put. Speaking of starting conversations, one thing I really, I think is really cheeky and a very direct way of starting a conversation is on Edry's website. You can buy a mask. But you can also buy a mask with someone to an MEP, which I love. That's fantastic. And... We'll also include the link to that down below. Speaking of MEPs, the European Citizens Initiative, which we're both party to, I guess, which again, you can sign, link down below if you're a European Union citizen, asks the European Union to instigate a ban on biometric mass surveillance. And that's what these masks, if you send them to an MEP, that's the conversation they're trying to start, right? Exactly. So on one way, the European Citizen Initiative is gaining a lot of momentum among the members of the European Parliament, both in terms of referencing it in amendments, surprising amendments that we've seen proposed that we were made aware of. We we're like, yeah, that's the weekly interface ECI referenced directly in that amendment. Okay, that's 
good. <laughs> but also in terms of the message and the call of the ECI. So previously, before the draft proposal that the European Commission launched on the Air Regulation Act in April, we've seen members of the European Parliament sending letters, more than 60 members sent letters to call for a ban on facial recognition, on biometric mass surveillance, in fact, in this proposal. And the ECI, the fact that we have 55,000 European citizens using their privilege in first point of being a citizen, but also using their power as a citizen to call for a ban is really speaking to how much support there is for this ban also from a citizen's point of view. So that is to say that I think often MEPs are aware of the needs for legal ban in legal terms for ban on biometric mass surveillance as part of the Artificial Intelligence Act and so on, but not always are aware that there's also tens of thousands of people living in Europe supporting this ban. So through sending these masks, we're raising awareness either on this tens of thousands of people supporting the ban, so therefore supporting the MEPs, or telling them that, hey, you know, there's also MEPs supporting for ban, do you want to support the message as well? And there's people, or we're seeing you, you're not our friend, there's people supporting a ban, and there's your colleagues too supporting a ban. So in any case, these masks raise awareness in many different ways. <laughs> Wonderful. If people want to participate in you know, either they, they've got a million masks in the cupboard or it's something they want to get more involved in. Just last week, you launched the paper bag challenge, right? Yes. You know, we, we concluded the um, project with the uh, masks and we were thinking, okay, but like, did we fail? What does this mean? Like, are we forever doomed against the currently deployed? facial recognition tech on the streets and then someone joked and they said uh, you know there's always a paper bag I mean if people really want to protect themselves they can use a paper bag and we laughed we're, but then we started kind of like <laughs> laughing crying because it's funny but then it's also sad um, that one really has to do that so we thought okay but why did we get this like initial reaction if we got this initial reaction then maybe other people also get this initial laugh reaction. But how do we use it to kind of get people engaged and understand the threats of these technologies? So yeah, we launched the Paperback Society Challenge. That is a social media challenge that invites everyone to share online the impact of living life with a paper bag on their head. This is simply because we want to challenge that whole narrative of you can do something about it against facial recognition. If you don't like it, just don't walk in front of it. Yeah, no, it doesn't work like that. So it's more of a, you know, we're using absurd comedy to make the point. 
saying like, yeah, look at me trying to avoid facial recognition with a paper bag on our head. So we've had a lot of people and organizations already creating lots of fun tries to live their life with a paper bag on their head. They failed. We, we saw people trying to swim with them. We, we saw people trying to uh, drink their coffee. We saw people trying to kiss their lover. It, it never worked somehow. So we really rely on, on our representatives to have our back on this one because they need to have us covered and not with paper bags. <laughs> so to say, living in a paper bag society is quite uncomfortable and summer is coming. That's going to be quite foggy. <laughs> Actually, in, in London today, it's pissing down rain. So a paper bag would be impractical for that as well. <laughs> We've seen also a lot of members of the European Parliament that are up for uh, sharing what their life would look like with a paper bag. So we uh, on their head. And um, so we're quite curious to see how different realities of different people look like when they're trying to use the easiest way in the end to avoid these technologies. Because as we've seen, developing a mask that does it in a really technically sound way is a lot of work and we're not even sure that it's possible. So step one, people should sign the ECI, assuming they've got the appropriate citizenships, I guess. Step two, go check out the masks. And then step three, whack a paper bag on your head and see how you do and post it on whatever social media that you prefer from TikTok to Twitter to Facebook using hashtag paper bag society. So we can look and laugh. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I can vouch for the fact that paper bags in a public space are also great conversation starters. <laughs> <laughs> we tried it and we've had more people stop for these things that the next door breakdancing crowd was having just by keeping those on. We did have to mention reclaim your face, facial recognition because people were really confused, but it is conversation starters for sure. <laughs> awesome excellent I feel like we're waking up to um, a lot of the realities that living life under surveillance would entail and I think a lot of people are understanding how their life would really change if this is going on so I think my final words would be let us all kind of strategically think how we can together form a mass that is uh, so much bigger than the sum of us all. Because as individuals, sometimes we might be not so powerful, but when we're together, we can apply so much pressure that it's impossible to ignore. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you so much for all the good work on this, too. I just, I, I, I'm never going to look at a paper bag the same way. <laughs> and I say that as a fan of the New Orleans Saints, whose fans often wore paper bags during oh. the darker years because they never played particularly well. And so, like, who could possibly be a fan of that team? And the fans would put bags in their heads. If facial recognition ever shows up at that particular stadium, then they'll be <laughs> set. <laughs> 
we're very grateful also to Privacy International for all the help um, in this project and the masks as well, because we wouldn't have been able to do it without you. So also we're very, very keen on taking this forward with the paperback society ahead <laughs> also. And yeah, like Caitlin mentioned, I feel like stadiums are particularly fun place to wear paperback on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank cool. you. Thanks for listening. You can find Edry's face masks at edry.org slash take action slash donate masks. Just to spell that out again, it's edri.org slash take dash action slash donate dash mask. Or in the link in the description and watch this space to find out how you can get a face mask from PI. Remember, we're running a survey to work out how we can improve the podcast. We want to know what you think. You can find it at pvcy.org forward slash TP survey, which includes a question now. Um, if you've already looked at the survey, it probably didn't then, where you can suggest topics that you'd like to see or listen to that we haven't yet covered. And you can find out more about PI and our work at privacyinternational.org. And we'll include some links to relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening. You can like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. It's also available on our website. The music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. Nice, nice, nice.